When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Mail Consorts with Dr. Ellie Woodacre. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elspeth to Prince Philip. Uh, today, however, we are not reviewing a consort, but rather we are going to be interviewing the historian Dr. Ellie Woodacre about male consorts. Nice. So obviously we've just had uh, Prince Philip, not Prince Philip, we've just had Philip II of Spain and Prince George of Denmark in our mini-series on the Stuarts, with a bit of Tudor. Uh, and we have William III in there as well as being uh, the joint ruler with Mary. So, yeah, we thought it'd be interesting to learn a little bit more about how that all works, where it fits in the European historical context. So we're going to speak to Ellie and find out more about it. So we are very excited to be joined on the podcast for the second time by the historian Dr. Ellie Woodacre. Ellie, thank you very much for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be back. You're the first uh, interviewee to come back a second time, so uh, hallowed status. <laughs> I feel flattered. Wow. <laughs> <Why not? laughs> uh, so many of our listeners may already have got to know you from uh, when we spoke previously about Joan of Noir, but for anyone who hasn't, uh, could you just introduce yourself again to listeners in terms of who you are and what you do? So I'm Dr. Ellie Woodacre, uh, sometimes published under Eleanor Woodacre, and I'm a queenship expert. So I have written on Joan of Navarre, as we talked about previously, but also more broadly about queens, queenship and uh, king consorts, which I think we'll be talking about later on today. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, it will sort of feel a bit odd that we're talking to uh, an expert in queenship on male consorts, but obviously mm-hmm. male consorts necessitate uh, queens regnant. Um, is it a subject that attracts much sort of scholarly attention, male consoles, or does it always tend to be kind of an offshoot of queenship studies? Yeah, it's funny. It, it, there was this one fantastic conference um, that was held at the IHR um, several years ago called The Man Behind the Queen. And that was the only thing I can think of where there was really a dedicated focus on these men and their position. And of course, that spawned the edited collection with the same name, The Man Behind the Queen, which came out. Um, so aside from that, to be honest, There have been studies of particular consorts as individuals, if you like, but not a lot of study of the role of like what it means to be a male consort, a king consort, a prince consort, etc. So so do you think that's because it's sort of always seen as a bit of an anomalous position, like it's not what's meant to happen, so it never quite gets defined? Is that why it never quite takes off? Well, yes, in a way, because obviously it is less usual to have a female sovereign and not all female sovereigns were married, like Elizabeth I, great example. So the situation of having a male consort, yeah, it is. It's not the norm, if you like. So actually, funnily enough, because it was the norm for most of our lifetimes here in Britain, when we recently had a scenario where we had a queen consort come back, I did a lot of kind of interviews, etc., around what is the queen consort's role? Because that had just been so long filled by a man, by Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, who had been you know, very well kind of exercising the position of consort to the sovereign. But obviously it was a reversal of what we know to be the normal scenario, if you like, in terms of British history and more generally. Yeah, because it was a funny scenario, wasn't it? For quite a while after um, Elizabeth II died, every time they referred to Camilla, they always had to say queen consort because everyone would have been a bit confused to hear queen and it not mean yeah. queen. Whereas, like you said, historically, you would always assume the queen is just the wife of the king. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we had to kind of retrain ourselves to get back to, like you said, what would be the historical norm, but hadn't been because we'd had a male consort for so long. Feels It feels like you, Graham does this, like you were saying, when you say the queen and you always have to say consort instead of the old queen. <laughs> like, it feels, feels like when are people going to stop saying, uh, you, are the, formerly known as Twitter? 
when they <laughs> <Yeah>. say X. <laughs> At some point, it's got to be the, it'll flip round. A couple of years, maybe. It takes time for people to get yeah. used to things, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in England, although uh, we come very close to having a queen regnant with Empress Matilda in the 12th century, it's not until mid-16th century that there is a queen regnant and thus a male consort. Is that unusual in Europe? Is that sort of tends to be the pattern or is it odd that England's had to wait such a long time before having a, a queen regnant? Well, it's not completely unusual. Obviously, there were examples of kingdoms who did have regnant queens in the Middle Ages. So the Kingdom of Jerusalem or the Crusader States and also the Kingdom of Navarre, which which I've looked at, um, where you do kind of get these kind of little gluts, if you like. And in Iberia, again, there's Urak of Leon Castile, for example. So there are other female rulers in the Middle Ages. So in some ways, it's unusual, but not completely. Obviously, in France, um, you know, with the, with the kind of Capetian succession crisis from like 1316 to 1328, the outcome of that is, you know, the, the re or the, the finding phallic law and applying it kind of <laughs> retrospectively to say that we don't have queens. So some places don't have them at all. Um, but yeah, it, I, I would say we're not that unusual in terms of being a little bit late off the blocks. And certainly the period of the kind of 16th century is often called the monstrous regiment, of, you know, from John Knox's you know first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, which was kind of reacting to the kind of number of kind of regnant queens, but also really powerful regent queens in that period as well. So sometimes we think of that period as being this kind of like high point, if you like, and kind of mm. regnant queenship or powerful women. And in part because it's when our own kind of history of kind of female sovereigns start. But it isn't that unusual. It's not like they were coming from nowhere. There was there was a wider tradition of regnant queenship. And actually, if you look more broadly on every kind of continent and, uh, you know, every, every period of history has them. So it's not it's not totally unique to the 16th century or to the early modern period. Mm. So is there anything about England that delays it happening for such a long time or is it just sort of circumstances that bring about the change? It's a bit of both. I mean, obviously, female succession tends to happen in the absence of male heirs. So that is one issue. So if there are male heirs, generally, that's where it tends to go. Also, I think the Empress Matilda provides kind of a, a negative test case, if you like, because of what happens and the so-called anarchy, you know, when, when Stephen of Bois usurps her position, uh, even though she had been clearly the designated heir of Henry I. So I think having a little bit of a, a difficult test case like that made it seem as if maybe that wasn't such a good idea, but it's not as much of an issue in that we do have plenty of male heirs to the throne. Um, it becomes a dispute over kind of which branch of the Plantagenet family will rule rather than having a kind of uh, a total lack of heirs. So it's just you get this extreme thing where even the disputed succession in England, it's still between different women. There's absolutely no sort of strong male heir they can really say is properly the legitimate claimant. Well, that's what happens in the 16th century. I mean, that's what's really interesting about kind of female succession in England in the 16th century is we do get to a scenario after the death of Edward where really all the potential claimants are female. We've got Mary and Elizabeth, his sisters. We've got the Grey sisters as well. You know, we have all these potential, and Mary, Queen of Scots, of course. Right. So, you know, we've got all these potential female heirs. And that is a really weird situation where you have a competition between women for the throne rather than men. And is it sort of like you're saying how the Empress Matilda is this sort of negative example that kind of puts them off for a few hundred years? Do you think the French experience where obviously the Hundred Years' War where England tried to claim the French throne via Isabella, does, is that kind of the nail in the coffin for the French? It's like, let's just say no girls because otherwise anyone could end up claiming it from wherever. Absolutely, absolutely. I and mean, I won't bore you to tears about the whole Capetian succession crisis because that should be a whole episode of itself. But effectively, yeah, I mean, that that is why it becomes so kind of cemented in French practice because really, you know, the whole kind of, there was a lot of kind of factors which shook out in the whole, you know, 1328 scenario. But because of Edward III and the claim that he had through the female line, through Isabella of France, it became imperative for the French to block that because that that you know they, they had to delegitimize his his potential kind of position as, as heir to the French throne. Now, ironically, you know, with everything that happens after Agincourt, we do have a situation under Henry the the, the Sixth where we do have a king of kind of France and England. Obviously, that that is very kind of short lived, etc. But um, but I think really the kind of solidifying of this idea of the Salic Law as this kind of central tenet of French monarchy is really about kind of again shunting out the claim of Edward the Third. Hmm. So. England has had its issues, France 
permanently has its issues. But as you <laughs> said, actually, there were lots of other places that had Queen Regnants before that. And even actually, we'd look like Matilda's consort, and that was almost... I thought one of the issues for Matilda, why she doesn't quite manage to succeed, is that there were issues between the English nobles and her husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. And indeed, Henry I sort of comes to regret that. But ironically, Geoffrey of Anjou became... Is it right? He became Count of Anjou because his father goes off to become a male consort. So there was Ab- actually a contemporary queen regnant at that time. Absolutely, yeah. There's this really kind of interesting scenario. And you're right, Geoffrey of Anjou was not beloved, particularly by the Norman barons and the English barons. And and so that didn't help Matilda, certainly. And that's one of the things that I looked at. When I first started looking at this, I was actually, as a master's student, I was doing a piece on female succession in the 12th century. And I was looking at the Empress Matilda and the Queens of Jerusalem. And you're right, this is this really interesting link between the two. So Geoffrey of Anjou's father, Fulk, is invited effectively to marry Melisande of Jerusalem. He is, you know, he's a tried and tested kind of military hero, well thought of in the Holy Land. And so when they need a, 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 a husband effectively for this, um, this, this, this heiress, they, they look to him and they invite him to come and marry Melisande. And then of course they will, they will rule together in the kingdom of Jerusalem. So it is ironically because Geoffrey's father leaves Anjou and leaves Anjou to him so that he can go off and become king of Jerusalem that, um, that kind of gives Geoffrey um, his title a little bit earlier than he would have done um, had he been waiting for his father to pass away. So, so yeah, it's a kind of a strange scenario where Geoffrey of Anjou fails to become kind of king consort of England and his father becomes king consort of Jerusalem. Wow. So it's weird to think of, of uh, crusading going on at this time. I always forget that that's, that's a thing that, that seems such an aberration now. <laughs> We'd go over there and think that this is a good idea to go and conquer the Holy Land with all this craziness going on at home. Absolutely mad. And it seems quite funny, actually, that that's sort of relatively early on in the Crusades as well, that you'd think it's such a military situation, obviously, the Crusades, and having to establish that position. So, so early on, you've got a queen regnant. Yeah. So it's interesting that that was, I mean, obviously, I guess they're assuming that the husband will come in and, as you said, like sort it out. General, he'll do the fighting. But still, it's interesting that that was accepted, that they're going to have a queen. You'd have thought they could just say, oh, let's just change. Let's have somebody else being the king. We messed up. Well, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting about Melisande's situation is the early kings of Jerusalem had been elected. And then effectively what you get is an election and then you get an election of a relative. And then you've got Baldwin II, who has four daughters, but is really trying to establish a dynasty effectively there. So he wants to leave it to his children, but he does not have any sons. And so actually the whole thing with Folk of Anjou is a really nice compromise because there's a dynastic element in bringing in this heiress, who's the the daughter of the current king, and this connection with kind of stability and kind of a the, the kind of barony who kind of implanted themselves there. But they're still kind of electing a king by selecting folk. So that was done with the uh, assent of the barony. Again, they liked him. The fact that he was a good military man was a key kind of part of that because that was a key part of his role. So it was a really nice kind of hybrid scenario of like we're electing a king consort, but we're also got this dynastic element mm. as well. So it. it works and then that's sort of interesting i guess as a general question um in terms of the male consorts and thinking again to our ones that we've just done because there's always a point in the series where in each episode i explain why they've made a certain marriage match why a certain consort is picked so what are the like are there different considerations when they're picking a male consort you said they're with folk that they need someone to come on and do the sort of traditionally male role of being the general so are there these different criteria when it's a male consort or is it the same stuff about military alliances and that sort of thing that they're choosing yeah well obviously picking a, a consort is is you know it, it's quite a difficult process i mean even when you're picking a female consort if you like there's a lot of considerations that have to be made are you going to marry within the realm or outside different political alliances that you might make what she might bring with her in terms of dowry etc but it's much more complicated when you're talking about a male consort because there's this expectation given the patriarchal nature of society and the way that monarchy generally runs in europe in this period that 
that he will have a much greater share of rulership, potentially actually even be ruling, if you like, for his wife. And so you're effectively in some ways selecting a ruler. So all of the choices, do we go inside the realm or outside the realm? Well, if we go inside the realm, are we making a man who's not supposed to be king, king, effectively? Are we kind of raising up a noble? If we go outside the realm, is that foreign rule by the back door, effectively? Mm -hmm. That was a big concern with Philip of Spain, right? So everything you choose, what about if he's a king of his own lands? Will he pay any attention to our lands, etc.? I mean, Fulk had to you know, get rid of Anjou so that he wasn't distracted by trying to rule Anjou from a distance while he was being king of Jerusalem. So all of those decisions are really fraught. They have a lot of input. What about his lands? You know, again, you know, will they be amalgamated with ours or not? And you know, everything is just that much more intense and much more difficult when you're looking for a male consort and defining his role. And again, what you want in that individual. Do you want someone who is senior, experienced, has military abilities? That's important in the kingdom of Jerusalem. Is that important in England? Do we want to get you know roped into their wars? Again, that was a real concern with Philip of Spain, that eventually we got kind of sucked back into the Italian wars and lost Calais. So, you know, again, the whole military side of it can be quite fraught as well. It's interesting because they obviously England coming later than these other countries in terms of the uh in terms of having that issue and having to make that decision so is there any extent to which they've sort of looked at the experience of others like Melisande and the other queen regnants or is it just this completely new contemporary situation in england and there isn't really a sense of there being precedent it's just there's a diplomatic deal we've got to make who's it going to be well, they're not as familiar with it, obviously, in England, having not had a female sovereign when you get Mary the first. But actually, ironically, both Philip and Mary are descendants of the Reyes Catolicos of Isabel of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. And that's uh, one of the most famous kind of scenarios, if you like, in terms of having, uh, well, it's two regnant uh, sovereigns marrying one another and the impact that that has. But Ferdinand's marriage, again, they were looking backwards to his father's first marriage to a regnant queen, Blanca of Navarre, um, and, and the kind of prenups and everything that was in that. So there's this tradition in their family of working this out, of having male consorts and of having to define the prerogative and the role of that particular consort. Obviously, that's really fraught here in England. And so they are very much aware of that history, both positive and negative. Um, for example, one of Aragon, um, one of the things that he classically does as a king consort that you don't want a king consort to do is that after his, wa his wife dies before him and he hangs on to the title and he's supposed to give it up to their son, the Brindy Viridiana, um, and, and he refuses to let go of power. Now, that's obviously one of the things you want to prevent, right? You don't want a foreign ruler hanging on to power long after his wife, which is his reason for being there, has passed away. So they're very aware of the kind of long-term history in their family of that. And I think the English are also aware, per particularly of the Reyes Catolicos and the agreements that were made um, before their marriage, and, and particularly when Isabel came to the throne of Castile as well, to kind of ring fence her position vis-a-vis -vis the consort. And we see that with the act concerning regal power for Mary I, and also the matrimonial agreements for the marriage of Mary and Philip, which really kind of defined what he could and could not do. Mm different sort of baggage isn't it when they're uh when they're complaining about dowries it's it's not like well you either get it or you don't it's not that like you bring a whole war with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the kind of dowry nobody wants right yeah <laughs> i hadn't really thought of it like that it's quite um because like uh, the william the th how far are we going forward in this one um graham are we covering um william the penguin third and mary Oh yes, I should blame for for reasons that don't make any particular logic. We've characterised William III as a penguin. Doesn't really make any sense. I don't but remember why. No, but yeah. So we're because th obviously for us we're applying it to Philip, William, Prince George, who's an egg. Um, but we're looking back for the historical context. So yes, you can apply it to the penguin. Okay, because like in that one, it was sort of good that he came with that military baggage because we yeah. needed it. Yeah. But then absolutely. you have an egg. The next one. <laughs> like who who didn't have anything at all didn't bring anything with him like, what was his name the george george of yeah. denmark yeah but in some ways we could see george of denmark as being an ideal consort or at least for anne i mean that scenario worked really well because nobody wanted prince denmark uh, sorry prince george of denmark to be king of england he didn't want to be king of england or king <laughs> consort of england Anne didn't want him to be king consort no. of england george was really happy to to be i guess an egg <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
He's not bringing with him any kind of wars. He's not bringing with him any kind of baggage. He's not distracted by being the king of somewhere else. Yeah. He's just happy, as he said, I'm happy to be my wife's subject. And he did that very well. And she gave him lots of lovely titles to be kind of admiral of this, that, and the other, because mm. that's what he wanted. But what he didn't want to do, I mean, he was a shy man. He was a man with really poor health. I mean, the last thing he wanted to do is step up and have to rule England. Um, so that was a really, that was a scenario that worked really well, actually. But it set yeah. a precedent for Prince Albert and Prince Philip of the kind of position in the role of the Prince Consort as being that one step behind. Um, there's no question of George of Denmark, again, being a King Consort in the way that Philip of Spain was, or obviously the dual monarchy of William and Mary, which is a real odd one in and of itself. Mm. And I guess it feels like at least in those circumstances, the baggage was heavy. It was a military one and it was all very important, but at least it was understandable. That's what, that's what, males did and although um george of denmark uh it was exactly what as you say exactly what anne needed and was and i really liked it is his consortship i thought it was great but it felt like that no one else no one could get used to this they've had male ones before but they were fighty this guy's happy not to do anything at all <laughs> i can't quite get to grips with it no, it's true. I, he, he's, he's, bless him, he's a bit of a, a wallflower figure, mm. if you like. But like I said, it worked really well. And um, everybody was happy. I mean, nobody was unhappy with George. He didn't he didn't do much. But again, that was part of his charm, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. I like it a lot. And it's weird, like we were saying earlier, about having to get used to there being a queen consort now because we're so used to having a prince. And again, George's role feels more normal for sort of a contemporary audience because you think, well, that is what that's what the consort does, that's what the prince consort does, whereas obviously mm -hmm. for contemporaries, like Ali was saying, it's like, this is really weird. He doesn't want to be in control. He's not demanding the throne. Like, are, are there any precedents for George in any of the previous male consorts in Europe? George is maybe unusual in his, again, desire to be completely his, his, his wife's subject. We do have some more supportive consorts, I guess we could say. Definitely, definitely. I mean, a really great example of kind of a study in contrast, if we're going to look at the Middle Ages, is Tamar of Georgia, right? So she has two husbands. The first one is a disaster. I mean, he's exactly what you don't want in a king consort. He tries to take over. She ends up fighting a war to get rid of him. I mean, he's just a, a nasty piece of work. He tries to undermine her and, and, and take everything away from her. Her second husband, David Suslan, was incredibly supportive of her. They had this fantastic personal and political relationship. He was an excellent military commander, but instead of fighting wars against her, he was fighting wars for her. And together they bring in this kind of golden age era. So he was super supportive. He understood the role. He was her helpmeet, her partner, in every sense of the word, if you like. And it was so good that actually recently they, they did a theatrical performance, you know, that kind of celebrated their beautiful marriage and this, how this ushered in the golden age, you know, for Georgia. So I think part of the success of her reign ends up being because of that second consort who ends up, you know, being an excellent kind of partner in rule. So yeah, perhaps not as many wallflowers, if you like, earlier on, but definitely there are examples of consorts who were supportive and who do had good relationships. The, the Queens of Navarre, they kind of a mixed bag in terms of, you know, um, supportive or unsupportive consorts or helpful versus unhelpful consorts. But one really great example, again, of a really good partnership is uh, Juana Segunda, so the second one of of, of the Juanas, um, who's married to Philippe Defre. And they have this great scenario that I call kind of team players where they really work together. And at times they even swapped roles. There were times when she was ruling his domains in France while he was um, cool. you know, crusading in, in Iberia, etc. So, you you know, they really knew how to, you know, how to divide, conquer and work well together as a team. And, and they were really, really effective in their reign. It'd be good to get a bit more about um, Navarre, because it's obviously we talked to you last time about Joan of Navarre. We also had Vangaria of Navarre and um, we, our most recent sort of special episode, sort of bumper bonus ones we do for patrons was on Catherine de' Medici, which had quite a bit of, um, I remember the proper name, no, Jeanne d'Albret. Oh, Jean yeah, yeah, Jean Bray, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it crops up for quite a lot, Navarre. Where, just to, to summarize something you studied in great depth, where does Navarre fit in? Because it seems to have this really weird sort of sometimes incredibly central role in English and French and Spanish history, even geographically, it's sort of a bit mixed. Where, where does Navarre fit in? 
Well, Navarre is is not a big state geographically. I mean, it doesn't have a huge amount of territory, although at times, because of marriages of consorts, if you like, it does kind of swell up its territory. But the actual kingdom itself is a small kingdom that's basically in the Pyrenees. And and if you know Pamplona, most people know the running of the bulls, Pamplona, that's Mm. the capital. But it's extremely strategic because effectively, if you want to bring an army from France into Iberia or vice versa, you kind of need their passes, right? And so it's a really important in terms of trade, pilgrimage, etc. So small territory, very important. And obviously its position means that it is quite, you know, uh, important in both Fr- French politics and Iberian politics as well. And it ends up kind of swinging back and forth in terms of which side is kind of influencing them more. And ultimately, you know, that it is, it is when France and Iberia increasingly become rivals that Navarre ends up being a point of contention because both of them want it and neither one wants it to be aligned to the other side. And eventually it's annexed um, in 1512 by Castile. So it's a small state, but it is important. And as far as England and Berengaria go, I mean, obviously, at that point, we had territories in Gascony and the Midi in France that basically butted up against Navarre. So Navarre was a strategic regional ally. So it's, it kind of gets lost a bit when you're thinking about England and you're thinking, why would England want to be allied with Navarre? But it did. And ironically, the very first of the regnant queens, um, Edward I, was working really hard to have a marriage between um, her as, a, as she came to the throne as an infant and his own son and heir. So there was a possibility, had that all gone through, that England and Navarre would have been united <laughs> you know, very early on. But obviously that doesn't happen. Those uh, heirs die. She eventually marries the king of France's son instead. And ironically, it's her daughter, Isabella of France, who marries um, Edward II, um, who was the last of the sons after the ones that she was betrothed to had long since passed away. So it's a real kind of irony there, if you like. So there is an interesting relationship between England and Navarre, but it seems often, it often seems, given its geographical size, that it's like, why would anybody want to be connected? Mm. To that? But they were connected to everybody. So, yeah. That's, that's funny as well with Edward then. That's twice he tried that trick because also he was going to marry um, Edward, the future Edward II to Margaret, maid of Norway, which would have brought yeah. the Scottish yeah. kingdom. So he obviously it was a tactic that he really wanted to. Yeah, well, he's yeah. He was a peaceful man, wasn't he? He just wanted to do it through, uh, uh, yeah, well, okay, I can't back that up. <laughs> no, but he was certainly a keen political operator, no matter how you slice or dice it. Edward I was <laughs> savvy on that front, so... But another interesting thing with Navarre, which found particularly looking at, at it through Catherine de Medici, is the fact that you often have like the French involvement, and the French have got the Salic law, so you can't have a queen regnant in France. But in Navarre, we do keep seeing these queens regnant, and it seems sort of thing where you get sort of French princes that are sort of semi-ruling Navarre, but it is technically the the female claimant. Well, there's an interesting scenario there because actually that test case for the succession of women in that whole Capetian succession crisis was actually one of the women who ended up being Queen of Navarre. So um, so just to really quickly kind of explain this. So the first regnant Queen of Navarre, one of the first, was married to Philip IV, um, King of France. And so at that point, there was a personal union of France and Navarre um, under these two, basically because a regnant queen was married to a you know, male sovereign. Um, so their children um, became the what was known as the Rois They had several sons and Isabella of France obviously, who we've already kind of spoken about. So the eldest of these sons, Louis X or Louis Lutin, um, he becomes king of France when his father dies, and he also inherits Navarre from his mother. But when he dies, he when at the point of his death, the only living child he has is a toddler female, right? So this is a problem because France has always had this kind of succession of father to son, father to son, and they don't really know what to do. But the queen is pregnant, so they kind of hang fire. She has a baby boy, but it dies kind of thing. But it's that little girl, that toddler girl who would have been in line to be, you know, king of, queen of France, if you like. Now, like I said, I don't want to get into the whole succession because we, we, can, we can come back and I can explain this whole thing because it goes on and on and on and on. But eventually what ends up happening is that she loses out on the French throne, but she does get back the Navarrese throne. And so the France and Navarre separate when the Valois come to the throne because they've got no connection at all to Navarre. 
And the Navarrese say, actually, we would like our own queen back. We don't have a problem with queens and we don't want the Valois to be ruling us. Hmm. So she goes back and she becomes Juana Segunda. So, um, so yeah, so this is really interesting kind of um, scenario there, if you like. But what's really interesting to me is this is like a long-term trajectory, right? Is that that family, the Navarrese family, end up becoming Jean d'Albray through Jean d'Albray's marriage, the House of Bourbon, effectively. So we've got Henri IV, King of Navarre, who becomes King of France after the ends of the French Wars of Religion. So then we do get the Navarrese dynasty effectively ruling France, but you know, mm. they were blocked in 1328, but they get it eventually. And even more ironically, then the Bourbon, through the War of Spanish Succession, become the rulers of Spain. So the Navarrese dynasty, even long <laughs> after Navarre is gone, ends up ruling France and Spain. So there's this beautiful kind of symmetry. But going back to what you originally asked me, apologies, it was a massive digression. <laughs> In Navarre, they do build up this tradition of, of regnant queenship. And some of it has to come from, and it's similar in the Kingdom of Jerusalem as well, laws which permit women to inherit in the absence of male heirs, inherit land. And that kind of becomes part of the succession. So if you can inherit lands, you can inherit, in theory, the throne, and it becomes embedded in the fueros, or the laws of the land, that in the absence of male heirs, it is permissible for a woman to rule. Once you get the precedent of Juana Primera, the first Juana, um, that sets a tradition, a custom. This mm. is what we do. The laws say this is what we do. Our history says this is what we do. And again, you know, it goes on from there. So it becomes easier and easier for every queen that follows because a tradition builds up in the same way that it did here in England after Mary I kind of established that. It was, you know, Elizabeth I built on that, the Stuart queens after that, etc. So it's almost more like if Matilda had managed to become queen, there wasn't a theoretical reason to stop her. She just politically didn't manage to do it. If she had done it, then there would have been a precedent and then it mm. sort of that sets the sets the template because it didn't happen then there's a hang-up that lingers absolutely absolutely i mean precedents both negative and positive precedents can be overturned but it is a real factor that i've kind of um to, when i talk about kind of what makes it possible for women to inherit the throne precedent tradition that is really important well i i've asked graham a couple of times at what point does it become worse to be catholic than a woman because <laughs> you know there must there's a point where where they're like they fight wars over religion but then as soon as someone comes on that fits the bill but otherwise is female uh, well, that's ridiculous hang on you know, there's, uh, what when does they when do they is it because they have to scrape the barrel so much that they're and i'm i'm speaking you know heavily ironically that that's worth the way <laughs> they're thinking that to get to the point where they just have to accept a, a female queen or are they just do they just give up on religion a little bit well see this is this is this is one of the key factors right so er, you know earlier on the kind of basic thing in terms of having a woman is what's more important gender or proximity of blood to the last ruler right so if mm. gender is more important to you then you'd rather go to a more distant male relative than have a woman on the throne mm. if what you want is the closest possible successor to the previous king then you know it doesn't matter so much if they're male or female but you're right the reformation in, in Europe, obviously, is it, it throws in another kind of thing. How much does religion matter over religion or, sorry, gender or proximity of blood? Is that a factor? And obviously, with the Glorious Revolution and then later on, the kind of settlement that brings the Hanoverians to the throne rather than bringing back the Catholic Stuart line um, means that all of a sudden there's another kind of thing in there, which is, is it worse to be Catholic than it is to be a woman or is it yeah. you know, in terms of yeah proximity of blood? So, yeah, 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 definitely. There is a whole nother monkey wrench into the succession uh workings <laughs> so annoying because i feel like um this is where elizabeth could have totally smashed it because she came along saying well she was yeah she came along as a woman she's remained <laughs> and is a woman was remained a woman, a woman for <laughs> and um so smashed a, a glass ceiling there and then also said things about not wanting to look into men's hearts about religion but it's after that, then you get the rule about not being able to be Catholic and inherit the throne. And it feel like there was a moment there where it could have, like all possibilities opened up and she made, well, which was bad because, you know, she was so vague about who should inherit in the first place. But uh, it could have sorted some stuff out later on. I mean, it seemed, felt like a backward step as we now see it, that, it, that they, there wasn't this opportunity just to, to sort it all out. You know, if we're going to make a rule here one way or the other, because it's just so, so uh, uh, ambiguous. Like the Scots, 
It's crazy. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. And and actually, obviously, it's the 17th century. It's the Glorious Revolution, like I said, and then then the whole kind of settlement to keep the Catholic kind of Stuart line out. That really hardens this. You can't be a Catholic, and you can't marry a Catholic. And 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 ironically, it's only kind of in the 20th century that we start repealing mm. this whole thing about not being able to marry Catholics, etc. Um, that that is, is really kind of stuck with us for so long. But you're right. And I mean, you know, Elizabeth perhaps maybe. Yeah, I was trying to find a third way. I don't know, but um, mm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems so easy now, but I mean, I say that we can't even accept an American person or someone who is an <laughs> aristocracy to the throne. So this would have been crazy. I want to talk a bit more about the um, sort of the different roles of the male consuls. But just before we get to that, I guess the um, and as we're on to the subject of Elizabeth, you were saying about the different options for when you're picking a consul and how you can go externally and the question of how powerful or not you want the person to be internally, but the potential squabbles. The third way, as you said, obviously, is just not to marry anybody at all. Um, is is that a, a route that others take, or is this something Elizabeth does that otherwise you would just never do because you've got to continue the dynasty? Is she unusual in not marrying? She is unusual. She's not completely unique for that, but I, it's often been held up as is the real reason for her success, right? The fact that she didn't marry and the fact that she used the possibility that she might marry is like her foreign policy trump card for like most mm. of her reign, even when it got to the point where it's like, she's really not going to marry. Just the idea that she <laughs> might, you know, was, was enough to kind of, you know, use for public, uh, for foreign policy purposes. Really, there aren't many women who go down that route, but there is Christina of Sweden, who obviously does not marry, but since she later abdicates, she's a wild card in a lot of other ways. So I think we can't really use her as like a norm. But there are other examples. So the Empress Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth of Russia was unmarried. So that's that's another example of uh, another Elizabeth, if you like, mm. that, that that chooses not to marry, and that works for her. Um, Catherine the Great is an interesting one because she was married, but she was not married at the time and that she was the regnant empress of Russia. She was a widow. Obviously, she kind of had a coup against her husband and killed him. That explained <laughs> that. But um, but effectively, the fact she was in a really good scenario because Elizabeth's issue with not marrying is the succession, right? If you don't marry, you have no children and the Tudor dynasty ends with Elizabeth, right? And and the whole you know idea of who she might make her successor, because she was very cagey about designating that individual, was again an issue through her whole reign. Catherine the Great doesn't have that problem. She comes to the throne, she's got sons, so she can carry on. And so she doesn't have to remarry. She doesn't have this whole issue about who is she gonna marry. There's no real expectation that she would marry. She carries on with lovers through her entire reign. That works really well for her. So you know, she, you know, she she ends up having another scenario. So you could say that single queens can do quite well, but obviously even better if you're a single queen who's also sorted out succession. Hmm. And obviously the um Elizabeth's success is obviously contrasted a lot of times with what happens to Mary Queen of Scots when she marries and makes poor choices, not necessarily always of her own volition in terms of husbands. So again, that sort of showed the danger of marrying for a queen, that what how you can be undone by a male consort. Absolutely, absolutely. And Mary Queen of Scots, you're right, is really the poster child for that. I mean, obviously her first marriage, not, not the issue per se. Um, and obviously it was so short-lived in terms of you know the actual period in which they were kind of reigning together as kings of Scotland and, and France, mm. uh, kings and queens of Scotland and France. Um, but yes, you're right. Darnley and Bothwell uh, are salient examples of kind of what can go disastrously wrong in terms of consorts, and ultimately is a huge factor in her in her forced abdication. Yeah. So in terms of roles of male consorts, so so we've got the three well the three husbands, I suppose, not necessarily consorts. Philip, William, George, all very different characters have pretty different experiences of being married to the queen regnant even just the titles actually it's all very different obviously philip is king but and i'm quite pronounced what's sure the uh the latin pronunciation was sort of jury or jury auxoris yes so like he's exactly. got the power via his wife but he's not actually king in his own right william who is just king regnant with his wife and then you've got george who isn't isn't actually even prince consort technically isn't he he's just he's just is a prince of denmark but he's not a prince of england as such yeah he doesn't really have an official title in the same way so you're right i mean all three of those scenarios are different and they're all situational as well if that makes sense so yeah like you said with mary obviously it's breaking new ground 
the whole thing of you know what his role should be has to be defined because of that lack of clarity and he is also already a king so you know he is obviously about to inherit and he does over the course of their marriage inherit the dominions of charles v during his abdication but charles makes him king of 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 sicily actually before the marriage so that he can kind of be a king in his own right not just because he married mary um so you know he doesn't just have the current matrimonial he can kind of stand on his own too if that makes sense um and that's also a factor in in terms of his role as well um as king consort is that you know you're kind of once you've achieved that level you're there Whereas obviously William and Mary, that's a completely unusual situation with the dual monarchy. And that has to do with the whole impact of the Glorious Revolution and the fact that actually William, if Mary and Anne didn't exist, would have been the next in line to the throne anyway. He was the next male individual in line to the throne anyway. So William's position as a co-regnant with Mary is indicative of his status, one, as a, a ruler, as stadholder, but also the fact that, again, you know, were it not for Mary and Anne, he would have been king of England anyway. So, yeah, so that that's a recognition of that. And you're right, George's situation is completely different, and he has no formal role at all. And again, doesn't get the crown matrimonial, doesn't get that title at all, nor does he appear to have wanted it. <laughs> and sort of, this is jumping way, way ahead, obviously, but I'm thinking is it that Prince Philip wasn't actually prince consorts actually albert's the only what designated prince consort of england am i right in saying that yeah there's no official there's no official position or title that comes with being married to a regnant queen like i said it's all been very situational and with albert i mean again you know there was talk that albert and victoria were hoping for the crown matrimonial for albert and that and that victoria was really you know that lord m kind of said you know don't push that that's not going to fly you know especially after george of denmark had set this precedent of just being remaining prince right so eventually yeah the prince consort thing is kind of a, a sop or a recognition of, of, of kind of his role but there is no automatic right to that spot and and again mm. naming him a duke of edinburgh again was also something to recognize give him a title, give him mm. you know, some kind of official standing. But again, there is no automatic right to a title just because you're the wife or the husband of a, of a sovereign queen. So we, he, we're, we're peddling um, a lie, Graham. He wasn't a <laughs> consort. Well, he's consort. He's just not prince consort. But he's... What was he... What do we call him again? What was his name? Prince... Prince, they, Phil- you know, the, prince, prince Philip... Philip. <laughs> How quickly we forget. Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, okay. So he's not Prince Con, but he was a consort. But he's just not got that as a title. See, this is okay. I wasn't aware of that as a thing. Yeah. Mm. So he was a consort well, and he was a prince, but he wasn't Prince Consort. Yeah, yeah. And I think hence again, adding to the confusion when Camilla came, um, you know, to the throne with Charles, and that there had been discussions because she didn't use the title Princess of Wales, that she might be like a princess consort or that she might mm. not be queen. And of course, the queen really, the Queen Elizabeth II clarified before her death that she wanted Camilla to have that title. Oh, and right. that smoothed the way for that. But it's not, again, there was a real open question of what would Camilla's title be? What would mm. her position be when Charles came to the throne? So, you know, Elizabeth II helpfully clarified that so we didn't have a complete mess when Charles did come mm. to the throne. Oh, that's so Elizabeth, isn't it? Tie it up. I'm not going to do what my namesake did. <laughs> so in terms of uh, the the previous examples then, this is said like Jerusalem and Navarre and Tamar, etc. What what was the situation there with titles? Were they, did they all become kings or was it Jurex? Well, like, did they have a sort of settled rule or was it also similarly just quite dependent on the individual circumstance? Yeah, well, with Navarre, they did have the title of king consort. Now, as I mentioned before, some of them were also kings in their own right, you know, like Philip IV, king of France, right? The fact that he's king of Navarre is neither here nor there for him. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just the king and queen of France and Navarre. Um, but um, but yes, they were king consorts. And like I mentioned, that was a real issue when Blanca I died and her husband refused to not be king of Navarre anymore. I mean, he, he wanted to hang on to that title even when he had no right to do so. So yes, they did have that title. And so same with the kingdom of Jerusalem they were they were kings of Jerusalem but we uh we never went for that do you think that's because it was just even though this would have been the same for everybody else as well but that there was just a sense that the word king conveyed something so strongly that it it, it would lend too much power to call somebody a king if they weren't the king mm. 
I think that's definitely a factor there. And like I said, the two kind of king consorts that we have are, or, or kings, you know, um, who are married to um, a female sovereign. Again, one was a king himself, you know, Philip of Spain. And then the other was, you know, uh, again, the stadtholder. And we talked about the scenario of the dual monarchy. So really, Prince George has a lot to, to answer for, because again, it's that precedent that he sets that that they don't get that title, that it's not conferred on them, um, that it, it, it becomes that this is the thing. You have the queen and the prince. You know, you don't have the king, the queen and the mm. king consort, you know. It always confused me as a kid. You have kings <laughs> that are male, queens that are female. So up there, you've got Queen Elizabeth and King oh, Philip. <laughs> but it just... It, it just Oh, that's just the Usborne book of kings and queens coming up, though. <laughs> well, it it does it does kind of make it clear that the power is vested in the in the in the woman, and that obviously mm. it does make it clear that yeah, say for example with Elizabeth II that she is sovereign, that she is not a queen consort. Mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, in fact, my husband asked me once. He's like, "Well, why why don't we do that the other way around? Why don't we have you know king so and so and princess you know whatever?" Yeah. But I think again, it's that patriarchal framework that we don't feel like we need to emphasize the fact that a, the king is really a king, but we do need to emphasize that the queen is really a female sovereign, oh, not yeah. a queen consort. And so there is having that different, that step back in terms of title kind of makes it clear she's in front and he's behind, that one step behind kind yeah. of scenario. Well, the fact that it is a kingdom, <laughs> it's not a queendom. I mean, it wouldn't be great. If, we, if that changed every time there was a queen. Well, this is really interesting because there have been a lot of discussions about whether or not we should use the title female king. And actually in Poland, where they did have Jadwiga, for example, she was king of Poland. She was not queen. She was king of Poland. Oh. So the question is, should we even use the title queen for a regnant sovereign? And it, it becomes worse for us in English because queen as a word comes from quen, which means the king's wife. So, you know, automatically when you're using that title, mm. you're assuming that's who it mm. is. So you do have to qualify and say, oh, no, she's a regnant queen. You know, she is she's a yeah. ruling queen. She's not like a consort queen. Um, but yeah, again, if you're using like Latin or something like right, rex and regna, it's the same word ruler male the male version and yeah. the female version it's not saying it's the the wife of so yeah you take the gender out of it so like actress and actor just everyone's an actor it's easier yeah exactly everyone's a king <laughs> everyone's a ruler i like ruler and sovereign ruler. for that reason mm. no confusion yeah yeah, yeah. kind of twisting my mind here <laughs> <laughs> the role of the consorts and the difference we said with philip william uh, George and their experience. Something I found um, really interesting as a way of sort of conceptualising that is you wrote about sort of three modes of power sharing, sort of particularly applied to Navarre, which I think is quite a useful way of exploring the different sort of roles that the male consorts have. Could you just sort of take us through that and those sorts of examples of how it can vary? Yeah, sure. So when I looked at these kind of five regnant queens of Navarre, and I wasn't counting Jean d'Avray because it was after the, um, the annexation of the kingdom, I kind of identified these different kind of cooperative modes or, or less cooperative in some ways. So I, I called them his way, team players and divide and conquer. So with his way, I mean, Philip the Fair is the example of that, right? Everything was about France. They stayed in France. In fact, one of Primera may, may never have been to Navarre. She was born in France and she stayed there, you know, very much stayed there. Carcassonne, I think, is about as close as she got. So it was very much about him and his way and his kingdom and everything was first and he was really leading. She had some agency with her lands in Champagne and Brie that she'd also inherited. But again, it was pretty much favoring him. The team players mode. So one is Segunda that I talked about previously and the last of the regnant queens before the annexation, Catalina and her husband, Jean d'Avray, they had a much more cooperative kind of scenario. And like I said, sometimes they would swap places. Uh, for example, Catalina, uh, she had many pregnancies, like 15 pregnancies during her reign. So there were times when she couldn't travel, she would deputize her husband, um, they would, you know, swap around as needed. Sometimes she was in his lands in France, and she, he would be in Navarre, for example. So there are, that was a more kind of, let's just do what needs to be done, and we'll swap around, and we'll just fill the roles as needed. Another kind of mode that I identify was this idea of divide and conquer. And so Blanca the first and her husband Juan of Aragon and their daughter Leonor and her husband Gaston of Foix uh, were really good examples of this, where 
the queen basically would stay in her territory and be minding Navarre, but the husband had his own lands and his own kind of political aims. And so they were doing that separately. Now, with Blanca and Juan of Aragon, his political aims and his concerns for his inherited lands, etc., were sometimes at odds. And actually, it brought Navarre into war with his neighbors because of it at one point. Whereas Leonor and Gaston of Foix, he generally was dealing with his lands in Foix Bien. She was de generally dealing with Navarre, but he would come provide military support, financial support, etc. So even though they were kind of doing their own thing, he was supporting her while he was doing that. So those are some different kind of power sharing modes that, that, that I explored. And that same idea... Um, my former PhD student, Dr. Gabby Story, she kind of applied some of those and when she was looking at the Angevins and looking at kind of power sharing and different using some of those different modes. So I wouldn't say that every regnant queen and consort king uses those three particular modes, but it was a really useful way of conceptualizing kind of personal and political partnerships and how that could work with these women and their husbands. Yeah, because I was interested, particularly I think it would like with um, Philip and Mary and how you can see how, I suppose obviously the problem was obviously there wasn't... Um, they didn't have children and obviously Mary being a bit older but you can see how like the divide and conquer could have worked if you had you know Mary there ruling England Philip doing his stuff in Spain everywhere mm. else and occasionally they come together to fight the French you can see <laughs> that might have worked but it felt like neither of them really wanted that it felt like Philip wanted it to be a his way thing but the English weren't keen and it felt like Mary sort of felt like she actually wanted Philip there rather than just this appendage that she could send off once the baby was born it felt like she wanted him to be in England ruling there rather than going off and being elsewhere no definitely I think if we were going to apply that to the English I would say the divide and conquer was it would probably you know explain Mary and Philip's kind of scenario and like I said even if she didn't necessarily want it to be that way and again Philip had his own kind of you know um uh, fish to fry particularly with you know fighting the French and whatnot I would think though that team players mode Victoria and Albert and, and Elizabeth mm. and Philip really exemplify that they were very much you know political and and um personal partners and very much kind of got that balance right between them and it was very equitable and 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 and, and really kind of you know again very effective long successful reigns um but I think Anne might be a really interesting example of like her way <laughs> if that, yeah. if that it was like it was about Anne and George was happy to step in the background and and you know be her supporter if you like and her subject but not necessarily kind of so yeah so I think we could use those same ideas the same kind of an analogies if you like with the English ones I was just saying cool. George's and I think we were thinking back to Falk of Anjou who was saying it's quite good how he he came as a landless husband so he didn't have any other commitments and George although he's a prince of Denmark he's the second son and he's not going to be king. He doesn't really have many sort of lands that he's ruling. He's got no particular diplomatic thing he's trying to push. He is just this this prince with no no actual real agenda that he's mm. got to push anyway. So he just comes as this very useful, almost neutral person just to stand by her and not push anywhere. Like you said, it's, yeah. Minister without story. portfolio. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, definitely. I think I think actually having a husband who is landless is in some ways an ideal scenario because it's as soon as the queen's husband has his own territories or his own kingdoms, he's either going to be distracted and there instead of in England, like we were just talking about with Mary, mm. maybe wanting Philip to be around more, or the policy needs of his kingdom are always going to be affecting her kingdom. Yeah, there's no way to completely kind of separate the two. And that obviously was detrimental in terms of the loss of Calais for us. Part of, not Philip, what's his name? The egg. George. Um, George. George. Part of George, <laughs> because he was, he. I get the feeling that Anne was a bit of a bully. So I wonder whether um, he they, he was perfect for her as well, because he didn't get in the way and it would they would have, had a real spat. Who is it that I thought she was bullying Graham? Well, a few people. So Mary, Mary of Modena, she makes sort of does a lot of the oh, the whole gossip. bed thing. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. she causes problems for William and Mary. She sort of was always pushing her. She's one of those. I said it's only. She's one of those. She only works if she's in charge. She's quite happy to then be fairly reasonable as queen. But when she's under somebody else, she she's the opposite of Stephen. Yeah. Who was all right when not in power? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. I mean, obviously, I think the one person who does push Anne around is Sarah Churchill, but eventually mm. Anne pushes back on her as well and says, "No, thank oh, yeah. you. I, I think uh, I think I've had enough of this. Thank you very much." <laughs> 
<laughs> but maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's just because she's a queen and we associate being assertive as somehow not feminine and, you know, it'd be Though it was more before feminine. she was queen that all of the sort of yeah. unpleasant assertiveness happens when she actually is queen. It seems fine. It seems yeah. fine. But yeah, but George <laughs> being pliable is definitely a good husband too. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely works. And I think Anne as queen ends up being kind of a, a, a pivot point. I mean, she, I think, I think actually Anne, you know, I think, I think it's only recently that we're giving Anne a bit more credit for being actually really effective constitutional monarch that she got mm. that role and she did that quite well. And I think we do tend to kind of gloss over her and see her as either just being not important or being pushed around by Sarah Churchill or just being a bit boring or maybe because George is, uh, yeah. was it that Charles II said, I tried him drunk and I've tried him. So <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, Nothing in him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, I think it's only recently that we're actually starting to appreciate Anne and give her a bit of credit for, for actually being quite an effective monarch. Mm. So remember she was a tricky one for us because she felt like right in the transition of going from the sort of old school, um, properly fully in charge, determining everything. But so she wasn't that, but she sort of still did it, but she also wasn't quite, the fully constitutional ones where you mm. wipe all of that stuff off. It's sort of just bridges of two different eras, it feels like. There. Yeah, mm. yeah, the evolution of constitutional monarchy, yeah, from like the glorious revolution, the present day. It's really interesting to see how that, how that goes. Mm. But again, she's a key shaper of that because that is a key moment in which that is being figured out. You know, how does this work, this constitutional monarchy thing? Yeah. Something just jumped out at me when, um, just going back a few minutes, when you were going through some of the sort of successful partnerships instead about Mary and um philip and then about elizabeth and philip and it just stuck initially with me because you'd gone mary i automatically assumed the elizabeth was elizabeth the first and obviously elizabeth first potentially could have married philip which would mean i've only just realized that both elizabeths could have been married to a philip which is a (laughs) a thing i'd never contemplated before the same one no, Philip of Spain did offer Elizabeth the first and and said, um, you know, I, I don't mind marrying you. We can I can kind of hang around kind of thing. But um, but she said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, obviously, relationship very much deteriorates with them. And we get <laughs> on it. So yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Like, yeah. She did not say yes to that idea. <laughs> so I guess I suppose you can imagine if like if she'd had to have a husband, a divide and conquer one, I a husband that never actually came anywhere near her unless she needed a favour. Would have maybe been the ideal match. Absolutely, yeah. I think if she could have had that kind of scenario, maybe that was the um, Eric of Sweden was one of the ones that she kind of kept hanging on the string for a while. Maybe the idea of him being you know, happily ensconced in Stockholm, London might work. So who knows? <laughs> how much does the uh, do you think male consorts have shaped how successful? I'm sort of thinking of just thinking of some of the successful and more famous of the sort of Queen's Regnant. So you sort of mentioned like some of the medieval ones like Melisande. Um, Tamar was someone I didn't really know anything about before, but just read about her a little bit and sounds really an amazing reign and character. How important do you think the the male consorts are in terms of either how far they're able to do that or like with Mary, the extent to which they can undermine uh, a Queen's reign? Yeah, well, certainly it, it is It is something that's a bit of a, a game changer. Like I said, if it goes well and you have a supportive consort and you do have a really good partnership with them, I mean, again, that, that, can, that can lead to the success. I think a really good example of that, actually, we can see in Iberia, right? So one of the early regnant queens um, in medieval Iberia is Uraca of Leon Castile. And her father decides that wouldn't it be a great idea if you married the king of Aragon? And then, you know, again, we'll kind of bring, you know, uh, not only kind of neutralize a potential hostile neighbor, but also kind of bring the kingdoms together. But they do not get along personally and they do not get along, you know, in any way, shape or form. And they end up going to war against one another. So instead of bringing this great peace, you know, and this magic thing, it ends up being a total disaster. Right. But then we've got the Reyes Catholicos. We've got Isabel of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. And actually how well they were able to work together personally and and politically creates this golden era, golden age era, right? And Tamara, as we were just talking about, her second husband, again, issues the, the success of their their reign. It makes, creates this golden age era. So I think if you get it right, I mean, think of Victorian Albert. Again, obviously, I know he doesn't live through an entire reign, but we always think of them as Victorian Albert and how successful they were. I mean, that had a huge part in the success of Victoria's reign and how we remember her and how we think of the Victorian era, etc. Albert is very much kind of part and parcel of that. So mm. I do think that having a good scenario with a good partnership with a king consort can be a huge factor in your success. And and ultimately, it can also bring you down. I mean, we talked about Empress Matilda. Geoffrey of Anjou was 
a, a negative for her, you know, um, and and that was definitely part of the the reason why she struggled. And with Melisand Folk, that worked out really well. They had they had a, a little bit of a bump early on in their relationship when he was trying to muscle in a little too much on her role, and you know. But after they worked that out, it was very good. Um, but Sibylla of Jerusalem, I mean, again, if you've seen the Kingdom of Heaven movie, you've seen Gita losing y'all, right? Her, that marriage was incredibly unpopular with the barons. They did not think he was king consort material. They really did not want her to marry him so much so that when she comes to the throne, they like, we'll take you, but you've got to get rid of him to have the throne. <laughs> and then she famously in her coronation crowns him and says, I select for my husband, Guy de Lusignan. And of course, the battle of Hattin in 1187, mm-hmm. the loss of Jerusalem, the barons are like, see, we told you so. <laughs> this guy was not so that we didn't want him to be king consort so you know i think i think it does yes having a good king consort can be a factor in your success and having a difficult one or an unloved one or one that's not not supporting you can lead to your downfall absolutely and do you think the transition to like we were saying with Anne, to a sort of more constitutional monarchy do you think that sort of helps make it sort of it matters less in a way that you're not expecting the ruler to be on the battlefield and commanding troops does that maybe make it easier then mm. for both queen's regnant but also that the male consort is perhaps becomes a bit less important in terms of the it still matters for the reign but in terms of the security of the nation i suppose it's not as big a decision yeah absolutely and certainly there's not this concern that again like it's foreign rule by bringing in a you know foreign king consort or that you know again you're giving the crown effectively to someone who's not supposed to have it um you're absolutely right in that the constitutional monarchy and the kind of more powerless scenario for the monarchy kind of diffuses the tension around the consort absolutely well thank you that's been really fascinating talking to you about all of that and um, i always ask if there's anything that you think we sort of missed or anything else that you think people should if they're interested to look at in a bit more detail or any other sort of big names or characters we've not had time to go into actually no i think we've had a really good chance to have a, a good kind of run across europe i mean obviously i think the only thing that we haven't had a chance to kind of delve into is the situation kind of more globally um but i talk mm. about that a bit in my queens and queenship book so i guess that's somewhere um people can go if they want to kind of think about that kind of beyond europe and, and mm. kind of think about the, the you know, how it works in different places and spaces over time um but no i mean i think i think it is something that's so fascinating and it's it's a topic that's been really of interest to me since i, I very much started my phd and realized that actually it wasn't just about studying female power and female authority and how women come to the throne, that these women had to co-rule with a man and that the dynamic was really important. And so, you know, just opened my eyes to how vital these men were and what a what a difficult role they had because it wasn't clear and it was mm-hmm. so contested and it was so controversial. So um, I'm really glad to see you guys giving a bit of love to the male consorts because they are really interesting. <laughs> Finally, just for once, we get to put the spot spotlight on the <laughs> royal men in history <laughs> absolutely and if i can put in a plug for something um the mm. english consorts collection that i uh, i was one of the co-editors for we go through all like literally from 1066 to the present day and we have all the male consorts as well as the female consorts so again you know if you want to know more about the english male consorts they're all in the english consorts collection <laughs> <laughs> i can recommend those they've been very useful for me in this series <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear it. Now, also, I think when we last spoke to you, you were you hadn't yet published the book on Joan of Navarre. And I think you were also just starting uh, the podcast as well. That I'm not sure if that had come out yet. So both of those things are now out in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So the Joan book is out with Routledge in the Lives of Royal Women series. And you can catch the Royal Studies podcast. Hey. Brilliant. And how can people find you online? Ali was saying X, formerly known as Twitter or mm-hmm. elsewhere. <laughs> If they want to find yeah, uh, on on X, formerly known as Twitter, I am at Monarchy Conf. So, <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh yeah, no, it's been lovely to see you again. Thanks, pleasure to be back. And like I said, I'm really honoured to find out that I was the I, I, I'm like a repeat offender. So that's great. <laughs> you're, you're top of the league table. <laughs> yeah. So that was Dr. Ellie Woodacre on Male Consorts. Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactor Podcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly, join the Privy Council, get access to loads of bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. And we do now, we've crossed the threshold where there are now more bonus episodes than regular episodes. It was equal before, wasn't it? It was, but it is now uh, now the other way. Good. And we have some Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Lorna Van Hilst, Nate Claxton, Carolina Gomez Moreno, Tom Brinton, Gina Fleming, Joel Zulo, Vanessa McCullum, Joe Pierce, Ashley Baker, Harry Emery, Matty Kumulainen, Tom Burns, Jessica Wells, Duchy of Beauchamp Canberra, Special K, Erin Thurston, Reagan Miller, Mark O'Brien, Julie Hitz Katz, Tina Jitama Jensen, Kirsten Jensen, Ilona Diomkina, Claire, Tarina Adams, and Kyle Arnott. Well done for joining the hallowed company of Privy Councillors. What does that mean? I mean, I know what that means, <laughs> but what does that mean that they get? Uh, loads of bonus content. And what must they do? Sign up to the Discord server. (laughs) (laughs) That's all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Ellie. And that's the last of this run of interviews. So after this, we'll be doing a special episode for patrons or for purchase for anybody on the Saxon king who wasn't Edgar the Etherling. Oh, I can't wait for that one, you know. Also, we do a message and previews episode, reading more of your messages and sharing clips of uh, some of our bonus episodes, including Edgar. And then in the new year, we'll be back to the consorts and the Hanoverians. Yeah. I can't believe we're there already. Mm-hmm. See you next time. All right. Bye-bye.